Rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the first chapter, reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's Word. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Thank you. One of the big historical questions that we are faced with as we see the events unfolding in the New Testament in the first century is how did the gospel spread And how did it do what it did and continues to do today? How was the world turned upside down? How did it get this far? How did it last so long? Luke wrote two books which take up about 25% of the New Testament. His gospel was the first of his books, and now the book of Acts continues that story that he began It has been dubbed the Acts of the Apostles, but it might more accurately have been titled the Continued Acts of Jesus Christ. It's all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach after the resurrection and the ascension. You see, Jesus is a living person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed, a person who continues to act within the real world. That's what this book is going to tell us about. On the one hand, this is the story of the early church, told, of course, very selectively, like all history. You couldn't write down every single thing that happened. If you just wrote down what happened in one day, it would be enormous. But it is told with an eye to particular concerns and interest. Even though Luke's gospel is more extensive than the other three gospels, Luke doesn't mean that he recorded everything that Jesus said or did, as John stated it in his gospel, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. 
In fact, you think about what's going on here and how enormous uh, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, everything that even led up to that uh, is, is, it just tells us that we have to get a bigger picture, I think, than we sometimes have. This is not some little side story that's going on in Israel uh, in the dark and a few people know about it. The king knows about it. Rome knows about it. All the people know about it. Thousands of people are coming out to hear Jesus, to see him heal, to hear him preach. This is, this is news everywhere. Everybody is aware of it. So pause and think about that for a moment. At this point, Jesus was renowned. Remember what Cleopas had said on the road to Emmaus when, remember, Jesus appeared to Cleopas and his companion and they didn't recognize Jesus. And Jesus asked, uh, 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 you know, what, what are you talking about? What's going on? And you remember their response? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? So this is an enormous event in the, in all over. Everywhere you go, people would have been talking about it, know about it. So the first two verses of Acts... <clears throat> serve as a bridge between the Gospel of Luke uh, and his life and ministry and the historical account of the developing church. We should see Acts as the continuation, really, of Luke's Gospel. It's part two. So the work of Je- that Jesus began to do during his earthly ministry continues because Jesus lives. In other words, it ain't over. During the 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, he instructed his disciples in the Scriptures. He said, I'm going to teach you all that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to say about me. So he did that and taught them also about the, the gospel. And he was preparing them for the tremendous task that was before them uh, from, that, from, from that day forward through Pentecost and beyond. God had told Abraham, you remember, that he would bless him and make him a great nation. Now he tells a handful of disciples. And, see, and when he told that to Abraham, it was just Abraham, Sarah, and then later Isaac. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham believed God. And now Jesus is speaking to a handful of disciples after his death. And says, I'm going to use you and take, you're going to take this message to the whole world to bless the nations. It's actually the same promise. It's a continuation of what God told Abraham now being fulfilled in Christ. And you know, in both cases, I think the reasonable response would have been, that's impossible. According to the four gospel accounts, Acts, and Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, Jesus appeared ten times in the period between Easter and Ascension Day. In the last chapter of his gospel, Luke describes some of the scenes in which Jesus met his followers after being raised from the dead. It really was him. He was not a ghost. He was really alive, transformed in body. He could eat and drink as well as walk and talk. But there did seem to be some different properties about him. 
His body could, for instance, appear and disappear and come and go through locked doors. What Luke and the other writers who describe the risen body of Jesus are saying to us that Jesus is more than ordinarily embodied, not less. There's something added here, something bigger, something more glorious, not less. His transformed body is now the beginning of God's new creation. And in God's new creation, as we know from passages like Revelation 21 and Ephesians 1, heaven and earth are going to come together in a new way. Jesus' risen body is the beginning of that. The point of the resurrection itself is that with, without it, there is no gospel. He is the beginning of a transformed physical world, which is fully at home in God's sphere, heaven. And so there are, without the resurrection, without this new beginning, there, is, there are no acts of the apostles or Jesus there would be only the sad memory of a great but failed teacher and a would-be Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus, who died under the weight of the world's evil, is the foundation for the new world whose opening scenes Luke is describing. And by the way, this is really important when we read the book of Acts, and I'll say more toward the end. The book of Acts doesn't end. There's not a closing chapter. We put an ellipsis. We're still in the story. This is still the acts of Jesus, the church, the body of Christ in this world, still doing the things that we're getting started here in the book of Acts. We're not spectators. We're not historians. We're not just doing genealogy here for the fun of it. We're here engaged in the very same things the early church was engaged in. We're facing all the same opposition, the same forces, the same things that seem overwhelming to us. God says, I'll take care of that. I will empower you. I will enable you. I'm bigger than them. I can overcome these forces of evil Verses 4 and 5, and, begin, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I just alluded to this, but we should carefully remember the promise that God made to Abraham. <coughs> From Genesis 18, 17 through 19, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God had things for Abraham to do, And he had things for the disciples to do, and he still has things for us to do. But in the end, and this is reassuring, it is his sovereign power and will that accomplishes the blessing of the nations. 
Abraham couldn't do it. These disciples couldn't do it. We can't do it in our own strength, in our own power. This is the supernatural work of God. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit are essential. Luke insists the Spirit is present when Jesus is teaching his followers about what is to come, and above all, that they're about to discover the Spirit as a new and powerful reality in their own lives. And so Luke says that Jesus uh, is pointing them back to the beginning of his own kingdom work, the time when John the Baptist summoned all of Israel to a baptism of repentance and renewal. And he says it's going to be like that, but it's only going to be much more so. It's going to be bigger and better and more powerful. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Calvin commented about this text, and he said, There are as many errors in this question as words. The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The noun Israel reveals that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time demonstrates that they were expecting its immediate establishment. His reply, Jesus corrected their mistaken notions of the kingdom's nature, extent, and establishment. We should uh, pay careful attention to those false assumptions because we're prone to make similar mistakes. Like the Erasmus couple who had, quote, hoped that he was, that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Remember, they're walking on the road and they're talking and they're disappointed because we thought Jesus was going to lead us, going to be the next king. And now he's dead. They had become disillusioned because of the cross. The apostles' hope, however, had evidently been rekindled now by the resurrection. Nevertheless, now they say, oh, I guess he is going to be the king. I guess he is going to crush the Roman oppression. I guess he is going to restore Israel to its prominence. So these disciples really had seen Jesus to be like King David was in the Old Testament, who for several years was kind of a king-in-waiting. You remember Samuel had anointed David when he was a young boy, but there was still a time period while Saul was still king uh, where David is in waiting. In fact, there are scenes where Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. And so there's a band of men around David, and that's kind of the picture we have here of Jesus is like David and this band of men around him just waiting for the time when he will ascend and be enthroned. So standing in the wings with a ragtag group of followers wondering when their turn would come. And so Jesus' true followers had imagined that he would be a king in the ordinary sense, which is why some of them asked if they could get some top jobs in his new government. So the disciples unanimously posed the question that was foremost in their minds. Here's Jesus appearing before all of them. Their first question, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? You ever had kids in the back seat and you're going on a trip and they want to know, are we there yet? 
Well, the disciples are asking Jesus, are we there yet? Is this it? Here you are. Is this what you've come to tell us? And he tells the apostles, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And by the way, it's still not for us to know. It's really not our concern. Or as my dad would say, I'll let you know when we get there. Next, Jesus intimates that the disciples with their reference to Israel are too restrictive. The gospel of salvation is for all nations. It always was. God began with Israel, but the plan was always, as we already read of Abraham, to take it and become a blessing to all the nations. Therefore, Jesus will now instruct them to be his witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus mildly rebukes the disciples for their limited understanding of the extent of the kingdom. He's teaching them uh, that the fa- he is teaching them that the Father is completely in control of the calendar of world events and that he will bring everything to its predetermined end. God has a plan and he's working it. Relax, Job. Remember Job wanted, had questions for God and God said, let me ask you some questions first. And when God got through it and basically said, you know, I, run, I created the world, I, I feed the animals every day, and a whole list of questions, Job said, well, shut my mouth. Never mind, I don't have any questions. In that, uh, we see that kind of thing over and over in the Bible. Abraham, relax. I've got this. Peter, I've got this. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. It just means that uh, we, like Paul talks about, some planted and some watered, but God gives the increase. We're the disciples that collect the loaves and the fishes, the few loaves and fishes, and then we have to go collect the big basketfuls of leftovers after God gets through with them. That's how the world works. And so... The disciples hadn't been expecting that Jesus would die a violent death, and so his crucifixion made it feel like and look like that they were completely wrong. It doesn't get more final than death. There was no way to win now. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then they they were not heading for the top jobs. It's going to be quite the opposite. Israel wasn't being renewed. The world was carrying on in its wicked way. And the rich and the powerful, oppressing the poor and the needy, was going to continue. It was business as usual. Is that what you think when you look at the world now? We too must reject the politicizing of the kingdom while not falling into the ditch on the other side of the road where we spiritualize the kingdom as if God's rule only operates in heaven and not on earth. The fact is, although it must not be identified, that is the faith, must not be identified with any political ideology or party, it has radical political and social implications. Kingdom values always come into collision with the world's values. And the citizens of God's kingdom steadfastly deny to Caesar the supreme loyalty for which he hungers, but which we insist on giving to Jesus Christ alone.
They would begin, indeed, in Jerusalem, the national capital in which he had been condemned and crucified, in which they were not to leave before the Spirit came. They would continue in the immediate geographical area of Judea, but then the Christian mission would soon radiate out (coughs) from that center in accordance with the ancient prophecy that the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. First to the despised Samaria, and then far beyond Palestine to the Gentile nations, indeed, to the ends of the earth. This is not a fairy tale. This is what has actually happened in human history and what is happening as we speak. Although they were not to know the times or dates, what they should know and what we should know was that they would receive power so that between the Spirit's coming and the Son's coming again, they were to be witnesses in ever-widening circles. In fact... The whole interim term, period between Pentecost and the parousia, the second coming, however long or short, is to be filled with the worldwide mission of the church in the power of the Spirit. They were to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. We have no liberty to stop until both of those ends have been met. And verse 8, which I think is just one of the central, if I had to pick a single verse out of Acts 1, this captures, this is our mission statement. Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. Uh, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts, or, or to the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the ends of the earth. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus to equip him for public ministry, so now the Spirit was to come upon his people to equip them for theirs. We see coming together the four essential elements of the, church, of the launch of the Christian mission. The mandate to witness, what we call the Great Commission, go. The, ascension, the ascended Lord who directs that mission from heaven, he's the commander-in-chief. The centrality of the apostles in the task, think of them as the field generals and the coming of the Spirit to empower them, the dunamis, the dynamite, the power, the supernatural power. And he says, you'll be witnesses to me. What does that mean? Well, in the resurrection and the ascension, which is about to happen, Jesus is indeed being enthroned uh, as Israel's Messiah, and therefore he's now the king of the world. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's now the king of the world. He's the one whose name, at whose name every knee shall bow, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. In the world of the first century, when someone was enthroned as a king, that new authority would take, uh, take effect through heralds going out throughout the territory declaring, we have a new king. 
That was the means of communication. This was always proclaimed as good news. So the messengers would go off to the far reaches of the kingdom. Imagine, for instance, a new Roman emperor uh, uh, coming to the throne and heralds going off as far as Spain uh, or uh, to the west or Britain to the north and Egypt to the south uh, to announce that Claudius or Nero or whoever was now the rightful king and to demand glad allegiance from supposedly grateful subjects. And that's what Jesus is telling them they must do now. You're asking about the kingdom. You're asking when it will come about, when Israel will be exalted as the top nation with the nations of the world being subject to God through his vindicated people. Well, in one sense, that's already happened. Jesus is saying, because in my own death and resurrection, I have already been exalted as Israel's representative. And in another sense, it is yet to happen because we still await the time when the whole world is visibly and clearly living under God's just and healing rule. But we're now living in between those points, and you must be my witnesses from here to the end of the world. This is the biggest, longest mission ever. And we think about a mission to Mars or a mission to the moon or a mission to the South Pole. That's nothing compared to this mission. And we're part of this mission. The apostles are to go out as heralds, not of someone who might become king at some point in the future, but as the one who has already been appointed and enthroned. But for the moment, we notice one thing in particular, which will help us when we read the rest of this book. Jesus gives the apostles an agenda. Jerusalem first, then Judea, the surrounding countryside, then Samaria, the hated semi-foreigners living right next door, and then to the ends of the earth. And as we read through the book of Acts, that's exactly the journey we're about to take. So before the apostles are able to assume tremendous responsibility of building the church of Jesus Christ, and to conquer the strongholds of Satan, they receive pow- the power of the Holy Spirit. In the upper room on Easter Sunday, Jesus breathed on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. But immediately before this, he told them, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. For instance, Jesus informs the disciples in his farewell discourse, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will testify of me. And so Jesus sends forth the twelve on the day of Pentecost as true witnesses of all that he said and all that he did. They saw it. Not one, but twelve. These twelve had seen and heard, and now they will tell others about him. First John opens with these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, 
we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem. We see that already in Luke chapter 24. And they preached the gospel in the Judean and Samaritan countryside, and eventually they're going to take it to Rome. Rome was the imperial capital from which all roads extended like spokes in a wheel and the ends of the then-known world. In the Gospel of Luke, he directs attention to Jerusalem where Jesus suffers, dies, rises from the dead, and ascends. And in Acts, he focuses on Rome as the destination of Christ's Gospel. From Rome, the good news will reach the entire world. So Acts 1.8 is a kind of table of contents for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 describe the events in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 mentions the scattering of the disciples throughout Judea and Samaria and goes on to record the evangelization of a Samaritan city by Philip and of the many Samaritan villages by the apostles Peter and John. The conversion of Saul in chapter 9 leads on to the rest of the book of his missionary expeditions and finally to his journey to Rome. So Christ's kingdom, while not incomplete, with, uh, while not incompatible with national patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms because that would reverse the proper order. We are loyal American citizens, but we are first and foremost loyal in the kingdom of God. And when his kingdom, excuse me, Jesus rules over an international community in which race, nation, rank, and sex are not barriers to fellowship. And when his kingdom is consummated at the end, the countless redeemed people will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It would be spiritual, the kingdom would be spiritual in character, that is, it transforms lives and the values of its citizens. It would be international in its membership, including Gentiles as well as Jews, and it would be gradual in its expansion, beginning at once in Jerusalem, then growing out until it reaches the end, both the end of time and earthly space. Look, we sit here right now in this advancing stream of gospel conquest. Who could imagine? Could, you, could they have even imagined? And then verses 9 through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. At the close of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus and his disciples less than two miles from Jerusalem. In Acts, Luke reveals the exact place of departure as the Mount of Olives. 
In the gospel, he he relates some details that having lifted up his hands, Jesus blessed his disciples. And as he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. But his narrative in Acts has just these words. After Jesus said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking. From other passages of Scripture, we learn that a cloud hides God's heavenly glory. A bright cloud, remember, enveloped Moses and Elijah as they were talking with Jesus at the time of the transfiguration. And from this cloud, the disciples heard God's voice. Two men dressed in white apparel stand next to the disciples. Obviously, they're angels sent by God. Notice the similarity with the appearance of the two angels at the empty tomb on Easter morning when the two angels in white appear to the women and to Mary Magdalene. And two angels now assure the disciples that even though Jesus has ascended from heaven, he will direct them in fulfilling their task. And they tell him, they, they tell them that Christ will likewise return at the appointed time. At the end of the age, Jesus said, men will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with glory, with power and great glory. So Jesus will return physically in the same glorified body with which, in which he went to heaven. He remains true to his character and word as he directs the increase of his church and prepares a place for his followers. He's not inactive today. The angels implied until Christ comes again, the apostles must get on with their witness that that is their central mission and mandate. It was the earth, not the sky, that was to preoccupy them, and it's the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, an obsession with times and seasons, These are the things which distract us from our God-given mission. Christ will come personally, visibly, and gloriously. Of that we have been assured. The other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. So the Acts of the Apostles ends very differently from the way it begins. It begins in Jerusalem, the holy city and center of the purposes of God, and it ends in the city of Rome, the eternal city and center of the world of of Luke's day. So the book of Acts infers a question, as we mentioned in the beginning. How did the church grow and become so bold from such a small and fearful beginning in Jerusalem to reach the end of the earth? The principal reason for the church's growth is found in the supernatural activity and the sovereign power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit that followed the resurrection and ascension of Jesus was a Christological event. It enables us to see, for example, how the promise of Psalm 2, which we sang today, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You think Jesus forgot to pray that prayer? Well, do you think that prayer is being answered and fulfilled? The victory, constitution, and power of the kingdom were greater than the disciples had imagined. Like most first century Hebrews, the disciples 
were nationalist at heart, longing for a return of the days of David and Solomon. But the purposes of God are far greater than their minds could possibly have grasped. Israel is only a tiny country, and the gospel was meant to conquer the world. The book of Acts has no proper ending because the acts of Jesus Christ continue today. Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church is another chapter being written in this book. Remember what we said from John? There are so many other things that Jesus did, he said, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You and I are part of this mission to the world. I'm not afraid of the world or the giants in the world. Are you? We have the Spirit, and we have the sword of the Spirit. And if God be for us, who can be against us? As David declared long ago, when he was but a teenager, too tiny to wear the armor, but not too tiny to pick up a slingshot and a few shiny stones. As he stood before Goliath, here's what he said. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's. And he will give you into our hands. That's the message of Acts, of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your conquering, for you, thank you for conquering all your and our enemies. May we stand with him who has won the victory already. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege and blessing of gathering together with your household to worship and give thanks. We are especially grateful for the love you initiated toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to empower us to be sons and to be witnesses. Thank you for the witnesses that you sent to us. Go with us now as we leave this place and return to our homes and to the world. Enable us to serve you and one another in gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. Amen.